And it's worth pointing out that even at this point, it was like, like you couldn't use testimony from a ghost in a legal sense. <laughs> like, you'll see what that means because, you know, they did this in like the Salem witch trials. And then after that, they were like, no, like that is not ethical. So we're not going to do that. So this isn't like the ghost is talking during the trial. That's not where we're going with this. <laughs> Important that I point that out. Like legally, this is above board, but it is a little bit crazy. <laughs> I'm Paige. And I'm Megan. And this is Spooky Science Sisters. Hello, you're listening to Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual. In this episode, we will be covering the stories of the Greenbrier Ghost and Cropsy on our first ever spooky true crime episode. And for those of you who have listened to our earlier episodes or who know us personally, you will know that we are very excited for this. Yay! Uh, okay, so before we get to our discussion, though, it's time to do something spooky, aka spooky news or whatever. <laughs> so Paige, did anything <laughs> spooky happen to you in the last two weeks? Nope. Nothing spooky. Nothing whatever. No spooky news. I got nothing. How about you? Uh, I also have nothing. (laughs) This is a pointless segment. (laughs) Maybe we just need to change something spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, usually we'll think of something. We'll think of something. It's fine. Or something spooky (laughs) will happen. I'm going to start sending you scary things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to creep you out. <laughs> so that way it seems like spooky things are happening. Yeah. Like oh, you know what? No. Here's something spooky. Oh, okay. It's not really spooky at all. Great. This is just news. Great. Uh, and by the time this airs, it may not matter anymore. Mm-hmm. But we have recently, maybe I talked about this last time, recently decided that we want to purchase a home. Uh-huh. And I don't know if anyone else out there is trying to purchase a house right now. But the market is very spooky. <laughs> People, I don't know if I told you this, but our agent told us that like they had written an offer for $52,000 over asking price that, that did not spooky. get accepted because no. there was an offer that was higher than that. Isn't that insanity? That is insanity. That is spooky. <laughs> that don't is spooky. That. There it is. That's what I got. That scares me. (laughs) Also, maybe I should sell my house. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. You absolutely should sell your house. Come move into like a rent somewhere for a little bit until you find a new house. Because literally, Elliot told me that he knows like people that he works with who have Mm -hmm. said that like people have just like straight up asked them to sell their house. Damn. Like, I will give you this much money if you sell your house to me. And they're like, it's literally not even for sale. I don't want to sell my house. And they're like, yeah, but we'll give you this much money if you just sell it. Like, yeah. What is happening? Yeah. So, so that's my something spooky. That is spooky. Also, I'm, there's I'm a bee looking you. me dead in the eyes right now. So that's also <laughs> kind of spooky. <laughs> I don't like it. Okay, well, now I feel like we've really done well this segment. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so, like Paige said, this is our first ever spooky true crime episode. 
I'm very excited. Paige is very excited. This is how both of us got into podcasts. Paige started listening to true crime stuff because she had an interest in forensics. And then she was like, hey, you should listen to this serial thing. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, we binged it. My husband and I binged it all on a road trip and... That's it. That's how it all started. <laughs> now we're here. Here we are. Thank you, Sarah Koenig, I think is her name. Yeah. For Koenig? Yeah. Koenig? I should know. <laughs> you should know. Well, I thought, I know how it's spelled, and I uh-huh. thought it was like maybe German, which would make it like Koenig. Yeah. I, I can't remember how she says it. It's. So. I think you're right. I think it might be Koenig. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you. Either way. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for seeing because <laughs> We're here because of you. Here we are. Um, <laughs> yes. So we thought that it would be super fun to do a true crime episode. And this won't be the only one. We already have another one in the works. But focusing on cases with a paranormal or p- potentially in the future, like a very interesting scientific twist. So, can I go first? Yeah. I, yeah, <laughs> okay. go for it. I'm very excited for your story. I didn't read anything about it either, so, like, bring it on. Great. So, don't even look at the notes. Just I, I won't. <laughs> just listen. It's Unless just I, you well, and me. I'll tell you to at least look at the picture so we can chit-chat about that. But, okay. okay. So, I am going to talk about the story of the Greenbrier Ghost, which has been covered on other podcasts, uh, and... I'm super excited. This was the first thing that I thought about when we talked about doing anything true crime related. But this is the story of the murder of a woman named um, Elva Zona Heaster Shoe. Um, But she went by the name, well, her maiden name is Elva Zona Heaster. Her married name is Zona Heaster Shoe. But she, no. I'm so confused. She went by Zona. This is all we need to know. It's fine. Was that like her middle name? Yes. Zona's her middle name. That's what she uses her first name. Yeah. So you'll see her. My point is like there are several variations of her name because like her real name was Elva, but she went by Zona and some things have her using her maiden name as her middle name. Some things don't. So Elva, Zona, Heaster, Zona, Heaster, Shoe, some... You know, some combination of those names okay. is what you'll see. But Greenbrier Ghost will get you there if you want to learn more. So apparently there's a drunk history episode on this, which I did not have time to watch before this, but I'm definitely going to because I'm sure it's going to be sort of nutty. Uh, but this takes place in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, and uh, there... In one of the towns, there's a plaque by the grave of a woman who was murdered in 1897 that reads, Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shoe. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to state prison only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. (laughs) So, I love it. I love it so much. Uh, (laughs) And it's worth pointing out that even at this point, it was like, like you couldn't, 
use testimony from a ghost in a legal sense (laughs) like you'll see what that means because you know they did this in like the salem witch trials and then after that they were like no like that is not ethical so we're not gonna do that so this isn't like the ghost is talking during the trial that's not where we're going with this (laughs) important that i point that out like legally this is above board but it is a little bit crazy (laughs) so all right and like why isn't this a movie okay you're gonna you're gonna wonder at the end of this. I have a lot of things to say, but I think I'll spoil it if I say it because I am pretty sure I know where it's going. So I'm just okay. not gonna talk. Great, yeah, just just <laughs> just wait. Okay, so Elva Zona Heaster, who went by Zona, was a farmer's daughter in Livesay's Mill, West Virginia, which is in Greenbrier County. Uh, she apparently had a little bit of a checkered past, at least like. For the time, it was 1896. Uh, She had a child out of wedlock in 1895. So, you know, Zona liked to get a little wild and party, uh, but was reportedly very beautiful and was well-liked in their small town. So she clearly, you know, sort of socially survived this scandal. (laughs) Oh, so scandalous. (laughs) I've got to set the stage, okay? Um, okay. So in the summer of 1896, Zona meets a man named... And, like, the names in the story are just like, how are these people for real? Um, but Zona meets a man named Erasmus Edward Stribling Shoe. But he goes by the name Trout. Well, of course he does. <laughs> Obviously. Duh. <laughs> so... So she meets him. He had recently moved to town and taken a job at the local blacksmith, and she falls head over heels. So she really likes trout. She really likes trout. Uh, Wait, hold on. Did he in 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 your research? Like, did Mm -hmm. he go by trout shoe? Yeah, or just trout by trout. So trout wasn't so much like yeah, it was a nickname, but it wasn't like when you just call your buddy like hey. Beanhead. I don't know. I don't know why that's the nickname I came up with. He legitimately like wrote that his name was Trout. Oh, I don't know. I just oh, okay. like he was known. He was known by Trout. Like I don't okay. know if he. Oh yeah, I don't know if he came to town and was like, "Hey, people call me Trout," or like that name got given to him after he got to town. Unclear. Okay. Sorry. So, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's. I mean, who knows these names? It's <laughs> obviously a very important question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, wow, this sounds so romantic, right? But we all know that it's going to go downhill. (laughs) So that's why I would make such a good movie. Um, So believe me when I say that I am not one of these people who, like, pines after attractive murders because I think that's gross. Like, weird. Like, the people who are, like, writing women, writing or women or, or men who are writing to serial killers in prison and being like, ugh. I love you. That's weird. You're my idol. Yuck. Yes, it's gross. Um, but I will say, so there are pictures that exist of them, um, and I put one of them in the notes, and we'll share it when we share this episode, that, I mean, he's like a pretty good looking guy for, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an, an important note to make, too, especially, I don't know if you remembered when they did... Um, 
I don't remember what it was called. That extremely wicked, wicked something, shocking and vile, whatever that was called. That um, Ted Bundy film oh, yeah. that, that mm-hmm. um, Zac Efron played him in, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of people who got really upset about them casting Zac Efron because mm-hmm. he's so attractive mm-hmm. to play him because they were like, oh, you're just you know making it. I don't know. You're romanticizing Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. And it's like no, like Ted, like there are serial killers out there. Or there are bad people out there who are very attractive, and that like you would you know think like oh man that's a good looking person they yeah. seem trustworthy and then like they're just not so yeah well that yeah it was like the whole thing about ted bundy is like he had you know i forget that they were married but whatever he had like a wife and kids and yeah and he was, was a good like, looking a charming, guy good looking guy that people liked so yeah so point being like i can totally see why zona meets him and gets swept off her feet and after just a few months, they end up getting married. So they get married on October 20th, 1896. And this is despite the fact that Zona's mother, Mary Jane Heaster, is not impressed by a trout. Um, <laughs> so she is like already not having it, which like good instincts, mama. Uh, okay, so now... I'm going to try and not giggle my way through this because, like, I know that it's very sad. But again, we giggle away the pain on this podcast. Um, Okay, so one day in January of 1897, so just three months after they got married, Trout sends his... And, like, I'm calling him Trout this whole time. Like, (laughs) this is... I'm not going to give up that opportunity. (laughs) Um, Trout sends his neighbor's kid, a boy named Andy Jones, to his and Zona's house to see if Zona needed anything because she'd been feeling ill and I guess like had been feeling ill for a few weeks and had had doctor's visits. So, you know, he wants to check if, if she needs anything. So poor little Andy walks into the house to find Elva dead at the bottom of the stairs, which like, fuck you trout. Like you fucking, Okay, like, you guys know, it's I said it at the beginning, he murdered his wife. And it's like, you knew that she was dead. You fucking murdered her, and then you sent a kid to your house to find her body? Are you fucking serious? See, I am curious to know, and I know you'll talk about it, uh-huh. but, like, Trout, do we know for sure that he killed her? Yeah. Like, there's, like, physical evidence. No. <laughs> okay. But I'm like... You just wait. Like, he killed his wife. Okay. But fair enough. Okay. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> because okay. if not, like, oh, sweet that he sent someone to check on her. If he did, like, you're a fucking monster. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So Andy finds her dead, and then he runs home to his mom, and together they let Trout know that Alva is dead. And Trout is very, very upset. He uh, goes home immediately. He tells people to call the local doctor and coroner named George Knapp. And this is where things get weird. (laughs) So, okay. So Trout goes first. It takes like an hour for Knapp to get to the house. Which, I mean, like, you know, I guess he doesn't really suspect that anything weird is going on but by the time that the coroner gets there trout shoe has moved his wife upstairs 
He's bathed her and he's dressed her in the clothes for her funeral. So he's done all this before the doctor even shows up. And it was apparently typically a Victorian custom for women in the family to perform this task. So this is like already a little bit of a weird thing mm-hmm. for him to do. And then Trout is like super weird and very distressed the whole time that Nap is there. Uh, he's clearly very upset. He's he's like cradling Elva's neck and head the whole time. Uh, he has dressed her in a high-necked dress with a stiff collar. He puts a veil over her face and he gets really worked up when Nap goes to examine those parts of her body. So Nap basically decides, you know, this guy's just being weird. He's overcome with grief. He doesn't want to upset him further, so he leaves and initially lists her death as, her cause of death as everlasting faint, whatever the fuck that means, (laughs) but later changed it to complications from pregnancy, so sure, whatever. Did we know, do you know that she was pregnant? I can't remember, you may have said that. They, I never read anything that she was pregnant, but, like, I wonder if she'd been sick for some time or, like, maybe, like, was struggling with that or something. I don't yeah. know. Okay. But, I mean, I, I don't know. She'd had a kid before, so unclear. Okay. So, the doctor doesn't really do a full examination here, and Trout is being a real weirdo <laughs> about, like, letting anybody around her neck. So, then, during the funeral, Trout is still acting bizarre. He spends the whole time like pacing around her casket. He keeps adjusting her neck and head. He has covered her neck with like additionally with a scarf that didn't match the outfit that she was wearing, but he claims like it's her favorite so she would have wanted to be buried in it. And he kept like trying different ways to prop her head up like with different things. So He's being really weird. Right. <laughs> like, like I'm sorry. Like, this dude fucking killed his wife. <laughs> like, and clearly, like, did something to her neck. So, yeah. But again, like, people chalk it up to extreme grief. And, you know, they write it off as just his behavior is just because of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I buy that. Though, I could see situations... I guess we're like maybe maybe he had done something to her neck but like didn't kill her and he was just trying to cover it so it didn't look bad. <laughs> we're giving this guy way more benefit out. I'm just saying like weirder things have happened <laughs> <laughs> than I ever would. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, like I mentioned before, Mary Jane Heaster, Alva's mother, does not like Trout. And now she becomes suspicious that he had something to do with her daughter's death. Like, she thinks that he murdered her. Mary decides that she's going to prey on this and ask for answers. And she does this for weeks and claims that her prayers were finally answered when Zona's ghost visits her four nights in a row and tells Mary of how Trout Shoe 
abused her and had broken her neck in some like fit of rage. So that's what mom thinks. (laughs) 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 So she goes to the local prosecutor and who's named John Preston and she convinces him to take up the case and between her story and people telling Preston about Trout's odd behavior at the funeral and Knapp, the coroner, confessing that he hadn't really made a full examination of the body, he orders Elva, Preston orders Elva to be dug up for a full autopsy. So now we're digging her back up. Cool. Uh, Yes. <laughs> how much long? How long is this now? I've. It's been like a few weeks now. Okay, that's all. Yeah. Okay. So a quote from a local newspaper, the Pocahontas Times, reports that on the throat there were marks of fingers indicating that she had been choking, that the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebra, the ligaments were torn and ruptured, the windpipe had been crushed at a point in front of the neck. So... She was strangled to death. Right. (laughs) And, like, her neck was broken. So, yeah. So she was definitely murdered. (laughs) And it makes it way sketchier that Trout's, like, spending all this time. What did he think was going to happen? Nobody was going to look at it? Well, I mean, nobody did look at it until her mom was like, hey, hey, I saw a ghost. And she told me to check out her neck. So... I mean, up until now, it was working. The plan was working. Okay. Okay. So, obviously, this is enough for Preston to be like, um, I'm going to look into Trout Shoe's past. And, shocker to no one, he's a real asshole. (laughs) So, this is... You're like, you're like, are we sure he killed her? And I'm like, yes, he definitely killed his wife. <laughs> um, okay. But he had apparently been married twice before. His first wife divorced him while he was in prison for stealing a horse. And she, <laughs> yes, she claimed that he was extremely violent and abused her. His second marriage ended after eight months when his wife died under mysterious circumstances. And I saw two stories about this. One, uh, actually a couple that claimed that he accidentally dropped a brick on her head while he was working on their chimney. Or like that's at least what he said and that's how she died. And there was another that said that they found her like at the base of a cliff and they were like oh hey your wife's dead and he was like oh my gosh she was missing and like you know put on a big show and the police believed him so like either way fuck the police for just like taking his word that nothing fishy was going on (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) that's my hot take on this (laughs) (laughs) that's the patriarchy right there um Yes. Uh, And then apparently while he was in prison for his horse thievery, he bragged that his plan was to marry seven women in his lifetime. Wow. Yeah. So I think his plan was just to, like, keep marrying different women and murdering them 
and like until he got to seven. I don't know what happens to number seven, but yeah, maybe maybe he thinks that it takes seven to find the right match. It's like maybe he's just gonna stick with seven. <laughs> like he's like you know all these other all these other chicks gotta go, so I can get to my lucky seven. <laughs> it's it's it can't we don't know. It's unclear. what a fucker. Yeah. So okay, <laughs> now you know. Okay. So, knowing this information, Trout Shoe is brought to trial for his wife's murder. And as you mentioned, or as you guessed before, like, completely uncircumstantial evidence. Like, there is no physical evidence that he killed her. It's, like, just... It's, I mean, it's his mother-in-law claiming that the ghost of her daughter told her that he murdered her. And then, like, all his weird behavior... And the weird stuff about his background that they found out after the fact. So during the trial, John Preston, who again is the prosecutor, avoids the issue of the ghostly visits. Because, like, obviously, right. <laughs> like, mm, I'm not going to build my case on this. But Trout Shoe's lawyers call Mary, Elva's mother, to testify And they question her extensively about this story, hoping to discredit her. So they're, like, trying to make her look unreliable. But she does not waver. And unfortunately for them, the jury basically seems to believe her story. Like, despite the judge sort of, like, trying to get them to, like, not not account for that when they're deliberating. But it's 1897. That part of the country could be a pretty superstitious place. Like, they're in the rural West Virginia area. And a lot of people probably still believed in ghosts. So, what did they think was going to happen? They kind of so, fucked that up. <laughs> and if, if if it's covered, if you talk about it later, you can just tell me to hold on. But, like, uh-huh. it's it's got to be covered. Like, what actually happened? Because, like, she didn't see her daughter's ghost. I I have some ideas, yes. Okay. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, yeah. So, his lawyers, like, try to make her look like the asshole. And she's like, no, this is what happened. And everybody, the jury bought into that. So, the trial wraps up. The jury comes back with a guilty verdict after deliberating for just over an hour. So, quick, quick. And Trout is sentenced to life in prison, and this is 1897, but he ends up dying in 1900 at the age of 39 after an outbreak of illness at the prison. And it's like, well, whatever, fuck that guy. (laughs) 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 I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all, and you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed. Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt, the ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words, my story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, 
really listens, it won't be for nothing. Okay, so uh, two theories that I have slash I have found for like what's actually going on here. <laughs> so one, these are my thoughts on like what what did Elva's mom actually see? What actually happened? So one is that she's grieving. She's very upset that her daughter was killed and that she hallucinated or had some like half dream state vision of her daughter that was fueled by the strong suspicion of trout that she already had. Like basically her subconscious just put the information together for her. Okay. Which like reasonable, I think. Yeah. Hi, Georgie. Um, the second, and this one I've, I saw a few times, is that she knew the people in the area that she lived in were superstitious. And she basically decided to tell a strategic lie on the stand um, and, you know, to, to help get a conviction. Okay. Like she knew that telling that story would sway the jury in her favor so that is what i was thinking Mm -hmm. while you were telling this was like maybe Mm -hmm. i mean she must have already had she was obviously obviously suspicious of him already so like Mm -hmm. maybe she just made this up so that way you know she would have some sort of story to tell but then Mm -hmm. i was thinking like okay but that doesn't doesn't that just like make you look like you're less credible but i guess if she knew that they were superstitious and would believe it Right. Yeah. I just so- like if I walked into a courtroom today and was like, "Oh yeah, so and so's ghost told me that this person did it." They'd be like, "Get the fuck out." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, keeping in mind again, this is like a rural area right, over a right. hundred years ago. Like times yeah. have changed. Times are changing. <laughs> um, yeah. So my thoughts about this are like, you know, maybe she, you know, either had just sort of like put it together because of the bizarre way that he was acting. Maybe she'd also, like, somehow gotten a look at her daughter's neck when he wasn't paying attention during the funeral and, like, figured out what happened. Because one of the details that I forgot to mention is that, like, in her um, in her testimony and in the story that she told Preston when she got the prosecutor to, to take up the case and start looking into Trout, she, like, specifically mentioned, like, which vertebrae in her daughter's neck were broken oh yeah so like she like knew like she described in detail like what had happened (laughs) to her daughter (laughs) is part of it so like so that made me wonder like maybe she'd like kind of look at her daughter's neck like at the funeral and then felt like she like needed a story to back it up like i don't know why she wouldn't have said something right away but like the guy had just murdered her daughter so maybe she was afraid and like felt bad about you know having to come back later and being like oh i sort of knew this but like yeah i need to dig her back up if it weren't for the fact that he had been so weird at the funeral and like tried to cover her neck up Mm -hmm. i would definitely be thinking it was mom right now yes yeah and i did see that pointed out as well but i mean he's just He's just a terrible yeah. guy. 
Yeah. And, like, some accounts of this, which, like, it's it couldn't really verify, like, whether or not it's, it's true, but, like, some accounts say that, like, after he was accused and, like, he knew he was going to trial and stuff, that he sort of just, like, acted like a real asshole. Like, he didn't think it was serious and thought he'd get away with it and stuff. So, I don't know. I think he did it. I'm pretty sure he did it. Yeah, I'm... <laughs> It sounds like you probably did. You don't just have like two wives die right. back to back in mysterious circumstances. And then just make and... some like weird comment about wanting seven wives. I am like a tiny bit suspicious of mom though. Okay. Fair Not enough. that I think mom necessarily did it. I just think mom knew more. Gotcha. Well, so this might sway you. So one of the newspapers who first published the news of Zona's death, uh, this is from the Greenbrier Independent also ran a story on the same day that they published that news called A Ghost Story. And so here's a quote from that. It says, One of the most famous murder cases in Australia was discovered by the ghost of a murdered man sitting on the rail of a dam, Australian for horse pond, into which his body had been thrown. Numberless people saw it and the crime was duly brought home. Years after, a dying man making his confession said that he invented the ghost. He witnessed the crime but was threatened with death if he divulged it as he wished to, and the only way he saw out of the impasse was to affect to see the ghost where the body would be found. As soon as he started the story, such is the power of nervousness that numerous other people began to see it, until its fame reached such dimensions that a search was made and the body found and the murderers brought to justice." So, basically, a man in Australia saw a guy get murdered, but was afraid of getting killed himself if he said anything about it, so he made up this story that he saw a ghost at that location, and other people went to look for the ghost and, like, by the power of suggestion, saw it, and they end up finding the body like he knew they would, and then they end up finding the murderers afterwards. So it's like, that's kind of an awesome story. Yes. But it's also like very possible that Mary Jane Heaster saw that story in the newspaper and was like, that's a great fucking idea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I'm like, that's such a coincidence. Yeah. So I, I really think that she probably just saw this. Yeah, saw this and, like, was smart enough to, like, know that he had done something and, and needed a reason to to get them to investigate him. So, so that's well, my story. Good work, Mary. <laughs> I know. Good work, Mom. <laughs> right. Although Paige is still suspicious of you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I said, I definitely don't think, because of how weird he was acting, Trout was acting, um, right. I don't think Mom did it, but I I just, like, like I said, wondered if maybe she had more information. Yeah. Um, like, but, maybe she was there. So, like, that's how she so specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Something stuff. like that. Yeah, Who fair knows? Enough. Fair enough. But good for Mary for telling I, on Trout. Yes. Fuck I mean, guy. I still think, yeah, he was the main perpetrator. Right. Here, right. So. <laughs> that's a good story. So I will be covering uh, Cropsy, which is known as like the urban legend brought to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I'm kind of glad that you've already, at least, you said you watched the movie. Have you read much about it? No, I've watched the movie and I've seen a couple other podcasts cover it, but I haven't actually listened to them. So. Okay. and But also I watched the movie like a, a lot, many years ago. Okay. Well, I'm hoping <laughs> that you still have some thoughts because every source I go to tells me like different things, you know? Okay. So I'm just, I'm curious to know your thoughts on some stuff. But so um, first things first, like Megan already mentioned, or maybe I mentioned it. I don't remember already. Um, <laughs> there was a movie on this story and there's one called Just Cropsy, which is a documentary. And then it's there's... not called Just Cropsy. It's called Cropsy. Yeah, it's just Cropsy. <laughs> sorry you said that a little weird it's like uh people are gonna go search for just (laughs) just cropsy um and then there was a movie it was like a slasher called the burning which was um this was the inspiration for and i've never seen that but it's cropsy is the movie that you've watched not the Mm -hmm. burning okay yes I've never seen The Burning, um but now i'm probably going to have to the amount of movies and books that doing this show (laughs) it's like going to require me to read at some point it's like i'm never going to get through all this shit Uh, i have like a whole freaking list of movies that i'm gonna watch but anyways (laughs) On to Cropsy. So, first we'll talk about the urban legend. For decades, children in the Hudson Valley region of New York were haunted by the story of Cropsy. And the story was always told by either parents as a way to scare their children into, you know, being good or not doing anything bad, and told by children as a way to scare their friends. So it was a lot of times it was like a campfire story. This was really, you know, the Hudson Valley boogeyman. So everybody's got, you know, their own sort of boogeyman. And this one in that area was was pretty popular. And in most stories, Cropsy was a patient of a nearby psychiatric hospital who escapes, uh, lives in the woods, and then just steals children. And, and when parents use it, it's disobedient children, um, like much like the boogeyman. Uh, yep. Obviously, with, with campfire <laughs> stories, it's more like, oh, if you fall asleep tonight, then Cropsy's going to get you. Um, yeah. In some stories, he carries an axe, and in others, he has a hook for a hand, which, like, I don't know, maybe he's a pirate? <laughs> I don't know. That's like, yeah. I don't know. I, I guess you assume he, like, lost his hand in some sort of terrible accident. Right. Like, and now he's got the hook to right. the kids. But, yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I love about this, though, and I love the documentary because it's it's made by a guy who grew up in the area, so heard these stories when he was younger about, you know, this creepy dude right, <laughs> wandering around, like, stealing kids. And, yeah, and then he finds out that it's, you know, potentially based on something real. But, yeah, it's just, like, a very area-specific, geographically-specific boogeyman, basically. Right. Well, but what's weird is that the story of Cropsy starts before the kids disappear. Oh, okay. That's my understanding of it anyway, is that, like, there is decades of this urban legend of, like, you know, somebody living. And and this, like I said, is is among the the Hudson Valley. Staten Island story becomes different because of the disappearances that happened in the 70s and 80s. Okay. So, like... But, yeah, but it's... Yeah, it's still sort of something that just like it adds to the legend or like helps the legend evolve. Though, yeah, exactly. Right? And yeah. yeah, and that's what and that's what I'll talk about. Yeah. So, um, 
And I, so, in like I said, in New York, Staten Island, parents and children told the story of Cropsey, but their story eventually evolves um, after a local hospital is closed and children in the area start going missing. In their story, Cropsey, you know, same sort of thing. He's coming after disobedient children, but he lives in tunnels underneath this abandoned hospital. It's called the Willowbrook Hospital. Um, and he would come out, kidnap the children, and then... In some stories, he brings them back to the tunnels with him. I'll, I'll, I'll cover a little bit about that later. But before we specifically talk about the children disappearing, I did want to cover a little bit of the background of Willowbrook Hospital, um, just because I think it does add a little bit to the story. And it's 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 very heartbreaking. I mean, this, this hospital is terrible. So Willowbrook Hospital opened as a facility to care for developmentally disabled children in 1947. And that's when they, I actually, I think they maybe opened a little earlier, but they admitted the first 20 occupants in 1947. And by 1955, the hospital reached its maximum occupancy of 4,000 people. And it's a big facility for sure. But 4,000 people is like a lot that's of a people. Lot, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, like, I mean, because there are some pretty big, like, hospital hospitals, like, <laughs> medical hospitals. Like, I wonder what the maximum occupancy is for, like, you know, sort of like a standard city Yeah. I yeah, know. I don't know. Because 4,000 seems like a lot to me. Yeah. Um, and that is, like, supposed to be their maximum occupancy. Mm-hmm. And then by 1962, the hospital hits a peak of 6,200 people. So 2,200 over what the building is even designed for. So as you can imagine, I mean, there are way too many people here. The staff is underpaid. They're overworked in a building that is lacking resources. Those who are living at the facility, they find out have been severely neglected. Um, Like I said, not really surprising based off of just, I mean, the sheer number of people that are there. There's a lot of information out there about, you know, the living conditions um, Mm -hmm. that are, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. It's, it's really, it's hard to, to watch some of the videos. It's hard to see the pictures and listen to how these people were treated. Um, But it's out there if anyone's interested. Well, I mean, mental health care was like up until, not that long ago was pretty shitty yeah well (laughs) for people (laughs) god some of the quotes of people who like you know started these facilities or even there were a couple quotes like in the documentary from like people in that area at the time Mm -hmm. and it's just like yeah it's just it's very sad Mm -hmm. so in this particular facility you know some went without clothing uh there was a lot of reports of abuse there was a lack of beds um some people slept in chairs or even on the ground and there was a lack of you know other facilities that people needed um in 1972 an expose was published that detailed the abuse and poor living conditions at willowbrook uh and at this point like i said i mean they opened in 47 this is like years of people being treated that way Finally, in 1975, a class action lawsuit was forced or had forced the state into finding an alternative to Willowbrook for, at that point, was a little bit over 5,000 occupants. And then 13 years later, the hospital officially closed its doors. Wow. So once Willowbrook closes, that's sort of where the Cropsey story seems to evolve, in part because now they've got a new place for, for Cropsey to hang out. Um, but conveniently, around the same time that the expose was published and the lawsuit was taking place, Staten Island started seeing children, more children disappear. Mm-hmm. And in 1972, 
Alice Pereira was the first of several children who go missing over the next 15 years, and she also becomes one of the first that they kind of pin to a man named Andre Rand. Mm. Um, And you'll see he changes his name, like, several times throughout his life, Mm -hmm. Uh, but Andre Rand is, like, what he's currently known as, or what he was known as at this time. So the police set their sights on Andre Rand, in part because... He was a man who had previously been in prison for sexual assault and abduction. And this is one of those things that changes kind of based off of the source as you look Mm -hmm. at. Some say that, you know, he never injured any children. He just took them. Some say that, you know, like the sexual, that he was arrested for sexual assault. So it's it's unclear, but he's had some sort of criminal past. Yeah. And like related to children. And related to children. Mm -hmm. And he also lived in the same apartment complex as Alice. Okay. So that's sort of why they they start looking at this guy. Yeah. I like did not remember that one of the kids' names was Alice, and I, like, really fucking hate it now. <laughs> so, <laughs> my kid's name is Alice, so this makes it worse. Why did I suggest this? <laughs> We're almost done talking about Alice. <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> so... So, yeah, he's living in the same apartment complex as Alice at that time. So that's sort of – that's, like, one of the main reasons they mm-hmm. they um, pinpoint him. Though, honestly, even that I only saw in one source. Like, I suppose okay. – I don't know how true that even is. But um, I'd imagine he had to have some sort of connection to her because, like, there's no – real evidence at all that he's connected to this there's so little in fact that they kind of just let it go he had been released from prison just before alice had gone missing so i think that i mean maybe adds to the suspicion but like i said they don't really do anything about it they don't have any evidence they don't have any eyewitness testimony they don't really have anything so they move on now over the next 15 years like i said several children do go missing and same sort of thing. But they never find bodies. Uh, there's no physical evidence that's found. Mm. So they don't have anything to convict somebody. They keep coming back to him, but they don't, don't really have a reason to, to convict him. Until 1987. So in, 19, in 1987, Jennifer Schroeder goes missing. And after 35 days of searching, they find her body buried near the abandoned Wilbrook Hospital. They do find her body, but once again, I mean, there's no real physical evidence there that that anybody did it. I mean, obviously somebody did, but like, let alone mm-hmm. that, that that's Andres, Andre Rand did it. Mm-hmm. However, there are several eyewitness reports putting him with several of the missing children prior to their disappearance. Mm-hmm. And there is a eyewitness testimony that he was with Jennifer prior to her going missing. That being said, a lot of, my understanding is a lot of those eyewitness reports come after they like name Andre as the main suspect Mm, um, which is hard Mm -hmm. but they end up convicting him of first degree kidnappings okay for both Jennifer and another girl who had been kidnapped in that time Hallie Ann Hughes okay um so Jennifer you know she had obviously been murdered but the jury and this is another one of those, like, depends where you read it. So in some, time, some places it says that he gets convicted for murdering her. In mm-hmm. other sources I read that they aren't able to come to, like, a decision on a, mm-hmm. like, a murder conviction. And so he just gets the, the kidnapping sentencing. Okay. Which, like, I also struggle with because, like, if you are confident that he kidnapped her, then, like, I don't know. 
who else killed her? Right. You know? Yeah. It's not like somebody else did it. Huh. Right. Um, and Holly Ann Hughes, they don't even, they don't find a body. I mean, I, to my knowledge, they still haven't. Um, and mm-hmm. so they don't really have anything to connect him other than these eyewitness reports. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, no physical physical evidence, um, eyewitness testimony, some circumstantial evidence, like being seen with the kids. Um, but he also worked at Willowbrook when Willowbrook was still open. And, and this is one of those, it, you don't really know what he was. I, I read that he was a janitor. I also read that he was a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they find Jennifer's body near Willowbrook, I think that, you know, they kind of take it that back to him but like mm-hmm. there were 6200 people there i mean it could have been <laughs> it could have been <laughs> any of them yeah, um, or right. it could have been totally unrelated so anyways that's all to say that like i struggle a little bit with this case because i don't really know i don't necessarily think he's innocent mm-hmm. but i also don't really know that there's enough there to be holding him in prison for two 25 year sentences yeah yeah, like there's not any physical evidence like linking him to these kids, just eyewitness testimony. Right. And the fact that he worked at Willowbrook before. Mm-hmm. So, so again, th- another one that is circumstantial evidence. Right, right. Totally. But like one that I feel a lot less certain that this guy actually did it. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. A lot of people, even in the um, documentary, they were like, you know, people who felt pretty certain, as there always are. And then there was, mm-hmm. you know, the group who who thought, like, he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Their theories of what was happening or, you know, who took them or where Andre was could have been living when this was happening were mm-hmm. kind of all over the place. There were theories about where he was taking the children and who and possible accomplices that they would have had. A lot of people didn't think that he would have done it himself. Mm-hmm. But these theories ranged everywhere from involvement in a satanic cult as they as it always does mm-hmm. to living in the tunnels under the willow and under willowbrook which is where that cropsy story sort of evolved mm-hmm. and and the theory was that he was bringing children back to a group of people and they were trafficking children oh okay um so yeah basically that's what leads to the cropsy story that staten island knows today Mm -hmm. um you know it started as this decade-long urban legend of some crop i think it was initially called like the cropsy maniac who Mm -hmm. lived in the woods and would steal disobedient children and when all of this happened in staten island it sort of evolved into this this man who was living under possibly living under the willowbrook hospital and stealing children and taking them back to the tunnels with him yeah it's i mean it's pretty much just like you have this urban legend of this of this boogeyman who lives in a specific area and then yeah something happens in real life that makes him real essentially right right that's scary (laughs) right (laughs) i don't like it (laughs) yeah it's a scary story and it's like really terrible i mean from the history of willowbrook and then to the disappearances of all the children like yeah it's all it's it's terrible. Right. I know it's very sad. I do think from like an urban legend standpoint, this one's interesting because like you said, like not only did the stories of this boogeyman basically end up coming true, mm-hmm. um, but I do think it's interesting 
that we can actually see how the story that had been around for decades evolved to 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 make it fit what was going on in Staten Island. And that's part of what they talk about in that documentary is like mm-hmm. is is the the urban legend of the stories that are being told now about yeah. cops like does it really even fit into like what happened? Yeah, because, yeah, the original story was, like, he was a patient at, like, a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. He escaped. Right. Yeah, and then the real, well, supposedly real guy is, yeah, a person who worked there. And it kind of makes me wonder if the story hadn't existed prior to the disappearances, mm-hmm. if they would have looked at, as hard at him. Also, what I remember, too, is that, I don't know if all of them, but several of the kids um are people that he is well that got kidnapped whether or not it was under rand had mental health problems like one of the girls had down syndrome yeah um so so that like sort of adds this other layer of like this connection to willowbrook and like some you know some sad i don't know some sad exploitation of of kids who you know, we're suffering from mental illness or from disabilities. So it's not great. Mm-mm. It's, it's not a sad great. story. Yeah. But it is interesting to like see again, like a boogeyman who basically becomes a real thing. So. Yeah. So basically <laughs> uh, boogeyman was like one of the sadder episodes we've done. And then this just yes. basically took me back down that. Yeah. So thanks, Paige. <laughs> this is my fault. I suggested this, but I'm going to blame you for it. I had, I actually, funny enough, I had written down like when we first started this, I had looked up like I think I was looking up um, ideas for like short and spooky episodes. I had jotted down that at some point I wanted to cover this story, but I mm-hmm. didn't like realize. I didn't really know much about the background of it like i thought it was just going to be like oh there was the story and then mm-hmm. this guy and that's all like I, th- I thought that was all i didn't realize there was like this whole history with the hospital and like the whole reason he was connected to it i just i thought it was going to be a little bit more like cut and dry than that so gotcha i thought it was going to be a, a fun um short <laughs> I mean- and sp- spooky short and spooky short yeah and spooky. yeah and instead it was like this Very is right yeah oh but it is interesting so there you go now i'm real bummed out <laughs> good job Paige. all right well on that super happy note we are going to wrap up our first spooky true crime episode yay <laughs> come back in two weeks when kenny biddle joins us for another fun discussion on ghost hunting also yay <laughs> <laughs> if you liked this episode hit subscribe and share with a friend you can find us on twitter and instagram at spooky SciPod, facebook at spooky science sisters and at our website spooky if you have any questions about previous topics or ideas for future episodes, email us at SpookyScienceSisters at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening and stay spooky. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at StraightUpStrange.com.
Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. <laughs> <laughs>